Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. It's your host, Joseph Ricky, sitting alongside the curator for the Battle of Franklin Trust, Joanna Stevens. And we are actually here to discuss a little bit about restoration and the, the sort of the efforts that go on at all three sites every single day, 365 days a year. I would say from nine to five every day, but let's be honest, it's it's much earlier and much, much later than that. It's nonstop, the efforts here, and it's as minimal as some of the staff coming in and, and sweeping up from the day before to whole-scale restoration projects at Ripa Villa. So, Joanna, welcome to the Dispatch. Thank you very much. This is your inaugural appearance on the Dispatch, not as the 10 and 20, so this is... That is true. This is that it's is nice. True. Welcome it's aboard. It's Thank fun. You. It's a, it's a fun <laughs> environment. We've got we've even got balloons. That's you right. know, Very whatever. festive so, today. Um, so let's talk a little bit just about maybe a little bit about your experience in preservation. How did you come to be into it, and how did you come to arrive here? Oh, I'm not. I'm not sure that that's a very exciting and thrilling way to get started. But um, uh, long story short, I've always loved history. Always, um, I've always enjoyed reading, learning new things. Um, in high school, long ago, I um, had took all of the history courses I could, had a, an amazing teacher who really helped uh, shape that experience for me. Mm. And um, I've always been a, a nerd. My very first job was in a library. <laughs> That's my first paying job. Um, after that, I actually volunteered at a local military academy not too far from where I lived, and I actually helped the lady that ran the museum and the archives there. So that was uh, maybe not something all 15, 16-year-old girls were doing, uh, but I enjoyed it immensely. And um, so uh, from there, my love of history just grew. And um, when I went off to college, when I told people I was getting a degree in history, they said, oh, are you going to be a teacher or a lawyer? And I said, neither. I don't have the patience or skill for either of those. And I said I wanted to work in a museum. And um, so I worked at the college library, and I actually worked at the college museum all my my experience there where I went to school. And uh, and now I'm here. So there's a, f- a bunch of years in between there. But, yeah. uh, but I've been here in Franklin for close to 16 years. So in those 16 years, you've seen not only the merger with the Battle of Franklin Trust mm-hmm. becoming the operating manager of both Carter House and Carton, but now you've also seen Ripa Villa come into the picture as well. So now daily interpretation at all three sites, that kind of comes under one wing, but then there's the restoration and the preservation at all three houses as well. So a little bit about Carter House and Carton. You can take your pick as to which one you want to start with, too. <laughs> um uh- I will say, giving a plug for um, some of our other efforts, we, my colleague Beth and I, uh, Beth Trescott, who's the collections manager here, we we spend a lot of time talking about what would be best, how we can improve things, because there's always room to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always room to grow. There's always room to change. And um, something I think that's very important working in this field is that you always have to be flexible. And um, I've said this before, but many people think about history as a very stagnant field, um, but they're really not doing it right then, if mm-hmm. that's how they're they're seeing it, because there's always changes uh, that can come at you, and you have no idea. And that is not just about research, but also, um, which 
research effects interpretation, but mm -hmm. also um, preservation, restoration. Mm -hmm. um, as an example, right now at Carnton, I am working with the conservation architect for an assessment of the smokehouse. Mm -hmm. Now, the smokehouse hasn't had major work or repairs or restoration since 91. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're a few years removed from that, obviously. So um, it's not that the work on these, these projects is not important, mm -hmm. um, because it certainly is. But I will admit there are always things that are more pressing. Mm -hmm. um, if some of the plaster is falling off in the home, you need to address that immediately. Mm -hmm. If there's mortar damage and there's a water leak in the other historic house, you have to address that. Mm -hmm. And so some of these secondary structures kind of get pushed to the back mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. a little bit. And so part of what, what I do, um, which is hard sometimes, is to provide a hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. And um, so the areas where we tour guests are obviously much higher mm -hmm. in, in that. Um, but... I've I've seen a lot of structures redone and work done, and I've facilitated a lot of that. And it's time to get the smokehouse at Carnton <sighs> going. So uh, we'll be having uh, repointing. Uh, we'll have work on the floor. We'll have work on the the roof. Um, all kinds of things. So it's it's about providing a balance, I think, mm -hmm. um, to what the guests see. And also making it safe, making it so it can last mm -hmm. um, a long time as well. So the, the thing at Carton is that there are tons of people that come here and they just see you know, the big, beautiful house and uh, have to major props to getting the porch restored. People now seeing that every day. It's a big, beautiful porch now. A <laughs> little all, bit at a time. Right. Uh, so then they walk inside the house and instantly, because it is so massive and I think some people have even said it's kind of cavernous in the sense when you walk in, they're blown away by the wallpapers and the floors and the furniture. So you make the decisions to get those things in there, but then you also choose smaller things to go out on display as well. It's not just a bed. It's not just a dining room table or a bookshelf. There's, there's little things. Uh, you know, we were talking right before is that there's, uh, you know, a, a spittoon in the corner. There's a cigar cutter on the shelf. And then uh, I think I, I told you one of my favorite things in the house is Albert Taylor Bledsoe's Essays on Liberty and Slavery. To see that book as part of not only John McGavick's personal collection, but then here on display, it allows everyday interpreters the opportunity to talk about that book and to talk about what Bledsoe thought about it and, and what his, um, you know, his defense, if you would, of mm -hmm. slavery was. And so to see that book on display, that's something that's really important, I think, there's a lot of different factors that go into choosing things to put on display, mm -hmm. uh, whether that be in the small museums and the display areas we have or inside the homes or the outbuildings or even what we choose to put in our dispatch magazine mm -hmm. or online. Um, we always want to be mindful of the resources we have. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds like kind of an obvious statement, but as a museum, as an institution, you cannot ever put everything out on display right it's just very i shouldn't say that it is possible to do that but it can be overwhelming mm -hmm. for the guests um especially if you have a house museum like we do we're operating mm -hmm. three different house museums if we furnished every room fully as it would have been in the 19th century 
there would not be room for 25 to 30 guests per group to right. walk around uh, safely. Um, so, so I try to be mindful about small things that we put out, and very practically, there is a uh, you got to think about can somebody take this, mm-hmm. uh, right? So we have to consider practical considerations as well. But um, we want to make sure that we're giving an appropriate presentation of how the family lived. Mm-hmm things that they would have used, things that they would have read, touched, mm-hmm. things that those who were enslaved here would have been mm-hmm. cleaning. Uh, the spittoon you mentioned, which mm-hmm. which I I love. Um, I think it's great. It's very different. Mm-hmm. It's not as fancy and clean and, wow, that's amazing, on mm-hmm. uh, you know the dining room table or something. You right. see a beautiful piece of, of silver, um, but the spittoon is down in the corner, but that's something that they would have used every day, multiple times a day. Yeah, it's on the floor. It's <laughs> surrounded by newspapers, and it looks like it's in use. Exactly. Um, for me, when I see that object, I think about who would have been using it mm-hmm. and who would have been cleaning it, mm-hmm. and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the slaves that they they owned would have been cleaning that probably multiple times a day, picking Mm -hmm. it up, getting it clean, polishing it. And so what does that tell us? What can we learn about the family? What can we Mm -hmm. learn about those people as well? So small things like that, including the Mm -hmm. book, um, that's, it's seemingly just one, one thing and it is, but it opens the door to so many other Mm -hmm. avenues of interpretation. Yeah. I mean, that, that book has allowed discussions about John C. Calhoun Mm -hmm. and his Mm -hmm. 1837 and 1848 speeches. It lets you talk about, uh, Bledsoe's spiritual defense of slavery Mm -hmm. is his sort of incorporation Mm -hmm. of biblical verses. And then it even lets you talk about Lincoln Douglas debates. If you can make enough segues (laughs) there to do it, you know, you can talk about so much, so many factors into what we talk about here every single day. We can talk about the the sectional breakdown of the country over slavery mm-hmm. with that one book, right? And it, it's the little thing like that. I think sometimes people see it and they look at it and they go, "Oh, that that's where this comes from," or "That's oh, I see how he's connecting the dots here." Sometimes it's hard, you know, mm-hmm. to to bring it all together. And people are very much visual learners. Right. I think when they come here, they they could sit in. I've told people this a hundred times. We could sit in the tap house right down the street, mm-hmm. and I can tell you everything that happened here and at Carter House and at Ripa Villa. But it's when you come in here and you can see the small things that the family would have touched that they would have held on to. Um, over at Carter House, the sampler up on the wall. I've told people for so as many as I think as long as I've been giving tours over there that I love. I love having that there because it's something that Mary Atkinson, that Polly Carter touched. And I could tell you that she touched it because she had to to make it, <laughs> right? There's the little things like that. And I think that that's what people experience when they come here to Carnton is they get this this feel that, yes, it's this big, massive house. Yes, these terrible, awful things unfolded here before and during the war and, and in a large part after the war. And yet look at the house. It's still like a family lived here. You know, you can get that feeling. I think it can be a challenge as well to represent a home when it's when it's caught in an event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's different ways to interpret house museums, right? right? So we can, if you're talking about a person, an individual, a house mm-hmm. like Mount Vernon, right? You're interpreting that individual um, and their contribution, what is happening there. So you've got a huge swath of time, whereas here. We really have three homes that were ultimately saved because of one event. Mm-hmm. 
And so interpreting a house when your main focus truly is five hours, mm-hmm. if we're talking about Franklin or, you know, in mm-hmm. Spring Hill, the Battle of Spring Hill, it's, it produces, it presents a different set of challenges. Mm-hmm. And does everything have to be tied to that event? And obviously, if anybody has come into Carnton or Carter House, they know that we mm-hmm. have not shown the homes as they were on November mm-hmm. 30th, 1864, or December 1st, mm-hmm. 1864, uh, because there's only so much you can do. Right. Um, and it's about the story that the guests are hearing and mm-hmm. how the objects in the home can aid in that. Mm-hmm. So I have long maintained that the house, whichever of the three that we're discussing, is obviously that's what I do, and those are very important to mm-hmm. me, those structures. But if... The houses were gone. If a tornado came through mm-hmm. and you know destroyed them, uh, all three, you know, hopefully I wouldn't think a tornado would get all three at once. But, um, <laughs> but if if a tornado came through and and damaged the homes, we could still tell the same story mm-hmm. after, mm-hmm. because it's not it's not the same as being in that place. But what happened here didn't change because of in. The, being in the structure. Mm-hmm. So for me, having the structure here is a greatest aid to mm-hmm. our tours at any of the three sites because it provides, as you said, that power of place. Mm-hmm. And that's why, although it's not very sexy and interesting to repoint brickwork. Right. Um, and, you know, nobody wants to, or very few people are interested in funding um, uh, grant projects to restore mm-hmm. shutters or, um, scrape paint Mm -hmm. and do that kind of thing. Those jobs are essential to make sure that the structures are still there. Mm -hmm. Um, We've recently done repointing of the parapet ends at Carnton. And so that just means that's the third, the third story Mm -hmm. um, ends. And we have a lot of work that's been poured into those because there was actually water coming in Mm -hmm. small amounts of water. And so addressing those issues immediately Mm -hmm. Um, or as soon as possible is key so the issues don't spread. Mm-hmm. Um, funding is always a challenge. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been very fortunate to have community partners that have helped us, private mm-hmm. foundations, grants, the state of Tennessee, the city of Spring Hill, the city of Franklin. So mm-hmm. we've been very fortunate um, for them to partner with us and mm-hmm. do that. Probably the biggest project that the state of Tennessee has helped us do was at Carter House. Mm-hmm. And um, if anyone has been, they have likely seen the Carter Farm Office. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be a, I would have described it as a barn red building. Yep. Yep. And um, so it was not open and available mm-hmm. for, for tours um, because the building was not stable. Mm-hmm. And um that, that structure actually way back when they first opened the Carter House in 1953 was the visitor center. Mm-hmm. They had a little desk and an office mm-hmm. and a display case with a museum and all kinds of stuff in there. Everything was jammed into one tiny little building. And um, when the new visitor center, I use that term loosely, the current visitor center, when the new <laughs> visitor center was built in the early 1980s, uh, 40 years ago, um, they closed up the farm office really mm-hmm. um, because they still had some storage in there, had right. some other things. Because there's, if you've been to Carter House, you know there's there's not a lot of storage options. Right. You're very limited. Um, so, long story short, um, as we've been working to build a new Carter House visitor center, 
um, we've been working to restore and work on the various outbuildings there. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, secondary structures often get kind of left mm-hmm. left behind, mm-hmm. but there's so much interpretation that really is very very important mm-hmm. um, that we've been we've been missing mm-hmm. for for a lot of years. And so in 2016, I think, um, is really when I really pushed forward to mm-hmm. begin the process. And mm-hmm. so um, I worked with the conservation architect and the state, the Tennessee Historical Commission, and um, we explored the possibilities, what was available to us, what mm-hmm. would need to be done at Carter House uh, for the farm office. And um, it was a mess. Um, <laughs> I, re- I remember seeing it in 2017 before I, before I started working here, and I've got pictures of you know, just putting the camera up to the one of the bullet holes, and you can see inside, and there's just, you know, stuff hanging <laughs> off the walls. There's there's missing pieces of, I, I guess, sheetrock or mm-hmm. plaster or something hanging off the walls too. And then you walk in there now, you get this chance to, you know, we I think Eric has called it the aha moment for a lot of people. <laughs> they open up the door, and it's just whoa. You know, you see this arrangement of all the bullet holes from the day of the battle all over the wall, and it's because the choice was made. To preserve that building and to restore that building, uh, and in large part, leave that scarring there so that it could be seen, so that you could understand, I think, in a really visceral way, how intense the fight was in the Carter Garden, and that is in large part a credit to you having that vision and to the state art, the state conser- con- uh, conservator for having that vision to say that this is what should be here. And that's, that's, that's one of the great parts about that tour is people love to walk through the house. They love to hear this family story. But I think most people, they get that hit right at the very end of the tour, and they see it right in front of them. That is a space um, that does not require a lot of words. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it. Um, I think the best experiences like that are it just allows you to absorb that experience and mm-hmm. you don't need explanation really now yeah. you've gone through the tour you've already heard you've heard that but mm-hmm. seeing it uh, with your own eyes is quite a is quite a change I will say when we when we first started that project um, the inside uh, without getting into all the crazy <laughs> steps and the, and the details and all of that kind of thing uh, once we had emptied the structure out um, we knew that we needed to assess the what's called the sill beams, which are the big mm-hmm. beams that run around the perimeter of the mm-hmm. building. Uh, it was obvious from the outside that there was some deterioration, but what we really needed to do was see them from the inside. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, everything was closed up, and the water and moisture and snow and everything else was coming in the bullet holes and running down mm-hmm. the walls, and it had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um and so it would sit there on those beams. And so if all those years later, you know, there was a lot of mm-hmm. um, a lot of damage that had occurred. And it, it was unavoidable. Mm-hmm. It, if the building was to be saved, you, there was nothing that you, you could have done when they first mm-hmm. um, did that. So I opened up the wall. I opened up one tiny section, mm-hmm. actually, is all I did first. It was maybe 10 inches by... 20 inches and it was right next to the window on the south wall and I chose it because I knew there were three bullet holes in that section Mm -hmm. from the other side because I wanted to see 
how they looked on the inside. I wanted mm-hmm. to see the water. I wanted to see any damage that had occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and I opened it up and I cut through the plaster. And it was hot as can be. I mean, it was the summer. It was just nasty in there. Mm-hmm. There was no breeze. There was nothing else. It has and a tendency <laughs> to get that way. <laughs> it does. And um, when I when I opened it up and I saw the light coming through those bullet holes, it was... I've done a lot of things in the time I've worked here. I've held a mm-hmm. lot of objects. I've done and seen all kinds of things. But that is truly one of the most incredible things that I've, mm-hmm. I've done um, since I've worked here. Um, and when I opened it up, and um, Eric might like to take credit for that, but um, but he did not open <laughs> it up. I, I did. And um, He'll be so, listening to this episode to review it before it goes but, out. But um, it, was, it was incredible. And yeah. uh, we knew after seeing that, that is there a possibility to leave some of this open, mm-hmm. all of it open? We didn't know. Mm-hmm. We, we just, we, we truly didn't know at that point. And um, I began to, to talk to other architects and preservation planners and call. I have made some ridiculous phone calls too in the time <laughs> that I have worked here and calling other sites to ask about how they treat their battle damage structures was probably right up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something that I, I learned really when we were working on that and I was, it was really investigating kind of what options were open to us mm-hmm. um, to be wise and mindful with the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had taken for granted um, this structure because mm-hmm. I was used to seeing it every day. Mm-hmm. And I had really just become so accustomed to it that I had forgotten how special and unique it, it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no other site that is available for the public to tour mm-hmm. in this country that is like that building. Right. And no one could really give me an answer mm-hmm. as to what they thought or what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I there was another site I contacted, and they had three bullet holes. I, it's just not quite the same. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> hundreds versus three. Right. Yeah. So, um, and so it it was something very different, and you know we really talked a lot about it, and there were some hard decisions um, to be made, but um, I think it's one of the most incredible projects that we've been able to mm-hmm. achieve um, in the time since. The Battle of Franklin Trust um, took over operations of Carter House and Carnton. I think that project is really transformational for for us as an organization, mm-hmm. but also for the site, mm-hmm. um, because the most important thing is that our guests understand and have that experience when they mm-hmm. come, but but that it's here for another 150 years, so right. other people can see it as well. And there's more projects afoot there's other things that are happening there's a whole other site that's now been added in the last year ripa villa which presents a lot of interpretive challenges on a daily basis because i've said this uh to groups is that you know the tour i was giving in july of 2021 is vastly different than the tour that i'm giving now in july of 2022 and that comes with giving a lot more tours in the year but also there's new information available all the time we're learning new things about the family all the time. We've done an episode on the Shares family. Mm-hmm. And even now, I listen to that episode, which is only about three weeks old. And I'm like, I wish we would have incorporated this and this and this and this. 
And there's choices to be made in the interpretation. There's also choices to be made in sort of the restoration efforts there, which are, I can tell you, in the year, just watching it unfold, much less like you managing its unfolding. is It's mind-blowing to see the transformation. I think we were talking yesterday in that staff meeting, and Eric said I was looking through pictures of Ripaville when we first took over, and it was like, oh, 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 I can't believe it looked like that. And now it's, I really think it, 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 it's, it's becoming, uh, there's a description that people used right before in all the articles about the gym of Spring Hill, right? It's, we're polishing it, you know? <laughs> so some of, you know, maybe give a little bit of insight into what, what's coming. What are, what are some of the, the efforts going on at Ripa Villa? And how can people get involved to help with those efforts? Ripa Villa is an incredible site. Um, and I, I still maintain, I think there's just so much potential mm-hmm. there at, at the home, mm-hmm. at the site. Um, it's, I used to live in Columbia. And so mm-hmm. I would drive past uh, Ripa Villa a couple of times a day. Um, it's always been a, a very beautiful home, mm-hmm. I think. And um, being able to do any work or facilitate work inside has been a, a joy mm-hmm. and, and a pleasure. Um, Ripa Villa, like any historic structure, is always in need of work. Um, doesn't matter who was involved. Mm-hmm. Every house, every structure needs repair. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's water damage there. There's insect damage. Um, those are, as I mentioned before, you have to deal with those most pressing needs mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. And so those have, have taken up a good bit of our time and energy and, mm-hmm. and efforts there. Um, trying to uncover the different layers of the history of the home. There's so much that, mm-hmm. that happened there. Mm-hmm. And so those those elements, those time periods of history affect how we choose paint colors, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Um, and so... Uh, there are new paint colors on the walls of the rooms on the first level. Mm-hmm. And um, I've gone slowly. Um, for me, uh, <laughs> for me, it's maybe a little too quick, but, um, but I have gone relatively slowly. Um, every color that's on the wall now is historically documented as being in this area in mm-hmm. Middle Tennessee um, around the 1850s or 60s. Mm-hmm. And so I've chosen to do that because, one, wallpaper is very expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they had wallpaper. Um, you know, there's evidence of wallpaper in other areas, mm-hmm. um, and that makes sense for a family of that wealth and, and a home of that size. But uh, we're not at a position where I feel comfortable making assessments about wallpaper. Mm-hmm. So what we've done in the interim, really, is to choose those colors that are appropriate mm-hmm. so that way we can have clean finishes on, on the wall, mm-hmm. um, patch in any holes where something might have been hanging or a crack in the plaster mm-hmm. because uh, if anybody lives in a house with plaster, you know that's always cracking as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a continual um, maintenance need. So we've been working slowly but surely there. Um, we have been repointing some of the brick on the back mm-hmm. side of the home where there was some water infiltration. Um, a, a real example here, I, I had worked very hard with um, a mason in Nashville, one of the, the best in, in this area. Mm-hmm. And um, 
absolutely incredible. We we went through a whole thing of actually putting in what's called through wall flashing in and dealing with seals and all kinds of things where we knew water was coming mm-hmm. in and there had been a lot of damage. Feeling great about it. No trouble at all. Three weeks later, water is coming in mm-hmm. on the area we did not repoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought we had solved the problem. Um, and then another problem. Water finds up. a way. So it does. So, <laughs> so, and that's, and that's why, but that's why we left the wall open. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to assess it kind of more long-term. We didn't want to close it up straight away. And um, so that has been addressed and um, it, it is a slow, it is an incremental process, mm-hmm. but um, exploring the home and getting up into the cellar or up into the attic and down into the cellar mm-hmm. has been excellent because the house has been substantially altered, mm-hmm. um, as most structures of that age have. Mm-hmm. Um, Carnton and Carter House were substantially altered, but many of those changes have been removed, so right. the guests don't see that. Ripa Villa, many of those late They're 19th, early 20th century yeah. changes are still there, so it's a different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing the home in the cellar really helps me mm-hmm. uh, better understand how it was built, um, the labor that was used, likely enslaved labor, skilled craftspeople, you know, mm-hmm. assessing those kind of things, seeing how the floor was laid, mm-hmm. um, seeing how the stone foundation was stacked, going up into the attic, seeing the original roof that actually mm-hmm. remains um, upstairs. You can see elements of the what's left of the original curved staircase that mm-hmm. went all the way up. Um, so maybe... Uh, the job is is not as glamorous as some people think. So mm-hmm. crawling around in the basement in the attic and um, you're sweating and you're covered in cobwebs, but but that's really where you learn mm-hmm. about the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more time you spend with it, uh, the better you get to know it, and then you can really feel much more comfortable in how the family was utilizing it. And sometimes it is just a guess. You know, we try to put our best. Um, information forward we do our research we do all that but sometimes you are left with was it this or this and you're never Mm going to know and you really just have to put okay this is what we're going to go with Mm -hmm. neither is wrong but you're just you have to make that decision Um, and I think a lot of that plays into restoration as well so restoration projects preservation restoration whatever we want to be talking about they all cost a lot of money Mm -hmm. take a lot of time um, and they're often not super visible. Yeah. Those projects. Um, the people that <laughs> the people that they want to throw their money at the thing that they can see and and right. it's and I, we want to put that. in through wall flashing. Right. Yeah. That's not Great. too exciting, is it? Um, <laughs> maybe maybe to me, but uh, but not to the average the average person. But those are those those are the behind the scenes things that have to be done because mm-hmm. without that, the thing that you can see the plaster. It's not possible. It's, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so it's a process. Uh, mm-hmm. We are always in need of funding for mm-hmm. that. Um, we uh, always are happy to answer questions. Uh, I get calls or emails all the time from people who live in historic homes because uh, of where this area we live mm-hmm. in. There's a lot of historic homes in this area. A lot of them call and ask about different techniques or do you have uh, someone you trust to do plaster work mm-hmm. or a trim mm-hmm. carpenter or, hey, what's that paint color that you used in XYZ space? I really mm-hmm. love it. Um, and so I'm always happy to, to chat with people about that. Um, 
and uh, get the opportunity to, to share what we're doing. Joanna, thank you for coming on the dispatch. Thank you for, I think this, it gives people an opportunity to understand that there's more to it than just opening up an old house and telling stories in it. Right. Um, that there's so much more that goes into it. And you've got an incredible staff there in the curatorial and archive department to facilitate some of the, the work that's done here. Um, so if our listeners want to learn more about uh, restoration efforts, you can contact us through the uh, through the website, go on there. If you want to make donations, uh, you can follow the link that is in, uh, in the description for this episode. And if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel as well, there is a video featuring Joanna and Beth on there talking about some of the restoration and preservation efforts here. Check that out. As always, thank you for listening to The Dispatch, and we will see you very soon on the battlefields. <laughs> <laughs>